scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 4 through 9 and 15. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for fruit. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Natalie. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. My name's Pete. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, really glad that you're with us, especially if you're a visitor or just a guest with us today. We're so glad to be here together. Uh, Last week, we started into our summer series going through the book of Genesis. And uh, if you were here, Sean kicked us off by kind of introducing the book of Genesis as a whole, as well as taking a look at chapter one. Uh, Today, we're in chapter two. Last week, Sean's sermon was entitled, The Creation Story. This week's sermon is entitled, The Other Creation Story. (laughs) And the reason for this is because throughout history, the majority of biblical scholars have recognized that Genesis 1 and 2 contain two distinct creation accounts. Uh, Typically, when you're reading a book, of course, the events of chapter 2, you would assume follow the events of chapter 1. But in this case, Genesis 2 actually retells the same story as Genesis 1, but it does so from a different perspective and with a different emphasis. And this is super important because if you don't understand that the Bible starts with not one, but actually two creation narratives, then you have to do all sorts of gymnastics to get the two stories to line up. And so uh, I want to start this morning with a little bit of Bible nerd stuff, if that's okay. We're going to kind of geek out on uh, these two texts, comparing and contrasting the two creation stories in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 for the purpose of seeing how these two uh, accounts actually complement one another. And so here's how chapter 1 starts. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. This is where we were last week. And what goes forth from here in chapter one then is this poem that's repetitive and rhythmic and repetitive. It's about God, come on, it's about God speaking the world into existence. And he does it, of course, over these seven days. And so each day, God creates, and then he looks at what he's made, and he says that it's good. That's the Genesis 1 story. And the Genesis 2 story starts like this. It doesn't actually start at the beginning of, or verse 1. It starts at verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So this is the beginning of the second story. And then what we get is a creation account written as narrative literature rather than as poetry. And rather than describing God creating the entirety of the heavens and the earth, 
the author focuses in specifically on God creating this particular place and these particular people. Okay, so the first story is poetry, the second story is narrative. The first story is all-encompassing and comprehensive. The second story is focused and specific. The first story has God creating the world in seven days. It deals with time. And the second story has God creating this garden. It deals with place. Okay? There's something else we notice when we look at these opening verses in each of the stories. In the first story, who is it that creates the heavens and the earth, back to 1-1. One, one. It's God. So in Hebrew, it's the word Elohim, which isn't a name, it's just the generic word for God. It can be used to refer to any number of divine or godlike beings. So in Genesis 1, the world is created by God, by Elohim. But in chapter 2, who creates the heavens and the earth? In verse 4, it says, the Lord God. And whenever you see in your Bibles the word Lord written with all caps, that tells you that you're not just dealing with a generic word for God, you're dealing with a specific name. And it's the name Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name that God gives his people Israel to know him and to call him. And so the first creation story starts with the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them. The second story, Yahweh, the God of Israel, creates a garden and people to live in it. Okay, let's move on to the next set of verses here. What do things look like in the beginning of each story? Genesis 1-2 says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So in this story, God starts with a dark, empty world that's covered in water. This is the canvas that he's about to paint on. That's where he begins. In the second story, Genesis 2.5 says, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. So interesting, in this story, God starts with a dry ground that's barren and ready to be cultivated. Pretty different starting points. Okay, what about the order of creation? In the first story, humans are created on the sixth day, after the plants and animals and everything else. In the second story, humans are the first thing God creates because God wants somebody who's going to take care of the land. And one last question before we move on. What about how God creates? In the first story, God says, let there be light, and there was light, right? He speaks the world into existence through the power of his word. But in the second story, how does God create? He creates by getting his hands dirty. He forms from the dust. He breathes life. He plants a garden. So two different depictions of God here. In the first, we see a creator God who rules as king of the universe. And the second story, we see a God who is passionately and intimately involved with his creation. So, which one is right? Which one is true? Well, of course they both are, 
right? We have two distinct creation accounts that each tells the, the same story, but from a different perspective and with a different emphasis. And so the only way we're going to be able to make sense out of these two stories, and the only way we're going to be able to get out of this uh, scripture what the Spirit of God has put into it, is by reading it the way it was meant to be read. So when we come to Genesis, as Sean talked about last week, the lens that we bring to this text isn't, or shouldn't be, a Western, modern, scientific, or historical lens. These are ancient Hebrew creation narratives. They weren't written primarily as works of astronomy, or biology, or geology, or, or even cosmology. They were written as works of theology. These were designed to reveal the God who created the heavens and the earth and to show us something about who that God is and what that God is like. Okay, so you can debate about whether there were dinosaurs on the ark or whether Adam and Eve had belly buttons, but you actually aren't going to find those answers in Genesis. Um, that's not what this is about. So, I will say, obviously, Christians have believed different things about how to best interpret Genesis 1 and 2 over the years. But here's what all Christians believe, all throughout history and all around the world. We always have confessed this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. This is, of course, the first line in the Apostles' Creed. This is what all Christians affirm as truth. And so we may disagree about the details of how God created or when God created or how long it took, but all Christians everywhere believe that the earth is created and God is creator. And he rules over his creation from his heavenly throne as king of the universe, and he gets his hands dirty in the soil of the earth. And so, as we look at the rest of our passage from Genesis 2 this morning, we're going to be asking, who is this God that we see in the other creation story? Who are we, and what can we learn about what it means to be human? Okay, so first, as we've already seen in Genesis 2, the picture of God that we're given isn't that he's distant, unknowable, impersonal, somewhere else, somewhere out there, somewhere removed, but rather we're given a picture of a God who is passionately and intimately involved with his creation. Or put another way, point one, idea one, is that the world is a garden and God is a gardener. In Genesis 2, the world is a garden and God is a gardener. Before God is revealed as a judge, or as a warrior, or even as a father, he is first revealed to us as a gardener, which I love that. Look at it in verse 8 and 9. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Again, notice all throughout Genesis 2, God is always referred to by his name, Lord God, by Yahweh God. God is a gardener. Now, he's not a farmer, not a vocational farmer who works the land because he has to provide for himself. He's more like a hobby farmer. He's a gardener not because he has to be, but because he wants to be. 
It's a picture of a God who is good, sometimes for no reason at all. Sometimes you'll hear Christians argue that if you were walking through the woods and you came across a golden watch, that you wouldn't assume that this watch was the product of a random series of evolutionary events that somehow uh, created it. You would see how carefully and intentionally it was designed, and you would know that the watch was created by someone. Now, that's fine, and I get what they're saying, There is a place to admire the fine-tuning of the universe, but in Genesis 2, the world isn't a finely engineered watch. It's a garden. And gardens are wild, and they're alive. Listen to a paragraph from The Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. The creator goes off on one wild specific tangent after another, or millions simultaneously, with an exuberance that would seem to be unwarranted and with an abandoned energy sprung up from unfathomable font. What is going on here? The point of the dragonfly's terrible lip, the giant water bug, bird song, or the beautiful dazzle and the flash of sunlighted minnows is not that it all fits together like clockwork, for it doesn't particularly, not even inside the goldfish bowl, but that it all flows so freely wild, like the creek that, is all, that it all surges in such a free fringed tangle. Freedom is the world's water and weather, the world's nourishment, freely given, its soul and sap. And listen to this, the creator loves pizzazz. <laughs> Why did God create the heavens and the earth? Because he loves pizzazz. He's a gardener. He envisions what could be. He prepares the soil. He plants and he waters and he weeds. He trains vines and he prunes branches. He even takes piles of manure and uses them to grow beautiful things. And we start to see that this is a picture of God that's found all throughout the scriptures. When we see God as a gardener, we begin to see and make a little bit more sense of why he does things the way he does. We start to recognize ourselves as part of the garden and the way that he works in our lives. Planting, uprooting, pruning, cultivating and sometimes even growing beautiful things out of piles of manure. God is a garden in the world. God is a gardener, and the world is a garden. Um, The world, then, in Genesis 2, isn't introduced as a battlefield or as a racetrack or as a courtroom. The world is a beautiful, wild garden. It's created, designed, ordered in a particular way for a particular purpose. It's full of life. Which is why when we're talking about the world around us as Christians, I prefer the term creation to the terms nature or environment or anything. Those terms are fine, but they miss the biblical idea that there's a creator that there's a creative, personal being, an artist, a designer, an architect who made the world and everything in it. 
See, there's a reason when Jesus appeared to Mary after he rose from the dead that she thought he was the gardener. She wasn't totally wrong. So that's the first big idea. The world is a garden. God is a gardener. Next, God calls all humans to be caretakers of his garden. God calls all humans to be caretakers of his garden. In verse 7 and 15, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. So when humanity is introduced into this story, we see that the first humans aren't separate from creation. Humans are part of it. And this is why we often use the phrase here, the rest of creation, when we're talking about the earth and the animals. It's not that there's God and then there's creation and then there's us in between. We are part of the garden. We are part of the creation, just as much as all the non-human parts. And creation we see here isn't presented as a finished product. God says that it was good, but that doesn't mean it was done. And it doesn't even mean it was perfect. Sometimes we talk about Genesis 1 and 2 as a perfect world. That's not the word the Bible uses. It doesn't say it was perfect. It says it was good, meaning it was full of potential. It had everything it needed to become everything God dreamt that it could be. It was ready for humans to work it and to take care of it. And so as members of God's creation, he not only gives us this unique responsibility of bearing his image in the world, but he also entrusts us with the unique task of caring for the rest of his creation. And so that means that the purpose of God's creation is not just for human consumption and enjoyment. God makes the world he says that it's good, and then he invites humanity to take this world and to work it and to take care of it. God calls humans to be caretakers in his garden. So the psalm tells us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, which means we are not the owners here. We're the tenants, and we're called to carefully and creatively steward the goodness of God's creation. And notice this garden doesn't just contain plants, but it's full of animals, too. And from the very beginning, God calls humanity to be the caretakers of the animals. In verses 19 and 20, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. So God calls humanity to care for the earth, for the soil, for the plants, and also for the animals. This was part of the original creation mandate that humans have been given. I like the version of this story where God brings each of the animals to Adam to see what he's going to name them. And Adam starts off pretty confident and pretty aggressive and says, I call this one a hippopotamus. And so God writes it down, and he brings him the next one, and I call this a duck-billed platypus. And God writes it down, and then after thousands and thousands of animals, Adam's like, okay, a couple more. I call this one 
dog. <laughs> God's like, you're really going to like that one. And he writes it down. And Adam goes, I call this one cat. And God goes, wait, I didn't make those. Um, it's not in the text, but I think it's pretty clear. So... The picture here is that the earth is God's property and the animals are God's pets. And he's asked us to watch over them and to tend to it for him. And I don't know about you, but if God asked me to look after something valuable of his, I would want to do a good job of that. So I'm going to pause again and ask, how are we doing at that? I told you about this about six months ago during Advent, but I think it's worth mentioning again. Did you know that there's an island made entirely of plastic waste that's floating in the ocean between California and Hawaii? It's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and this is just one little part of it. They estimate that it's made up of 80 tons of plastic bags, bottles, other single-use plastic items covering over 600,000 square miles, which is twice the size of Texas, growing every day. Okay, we all know by now that the climate is changing, and maybe we can debate about whether that's human-caused or not, but I'm pretty sure this one's on us, <laughs> right? We are the ones that are buying and using and then disposing of thousands of pounds of plastic into the sea. One small example of how maybe we want to take this a little bit more seriously. That we want to listen to God and worship and obey him a little bit more faithfully because when God made the world and the earth and the animals, he saw that it was good and he left it to us to care for it, and we're not doing so great. Which is why we here at Antioch, you're hearing a lot about this these days. We are convicted that followers of Jesus ought to be the people most committed to caring for God's creation. We don't worship creation, we worship the creator. And one of the ways we do that is by, by being good caretakers of his garden. Um, Amy announced it a moment ago, but I hope that you know that Antioch has a neighborhood garden just over here in uh, the uh, Salvation Army front lawn. It's a partnership that we've formed with them over the course of the few years that we've been here, and it's one of the coolest things that's happening amongst this community. Um, the idea is that Salvation Army has this food pantry where families in need can come and um, get the food that they need, the groceries each week. And uh, some of you guys thought, what if in instead of just boxed and packaged food, what if they were able to give out fresh produce from their own garden? Um, this is happening right now. The beds have been built, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And uh, you're in luck because there's another work day coming up this weekend. Josh and Crystal Garner, raise your hands real quick. 
You want to do a dance, sing a song, anything else? That's just the hand raise. These guys are helping give leadership to this. Find them afterwards if you're interested in being part of it. Um, they, would, they would love to meet you and invite you in to this project of cultivating this earth that God's given us for the sake of giving food to people in our city who need it. Okay, so first, the world is a garden, God's a gardener. Second, God calls humans to be caretakers of his garden. And finally, number three, gardening is the pattern for all human work. Gardening is the pattern for all human work. So how many of you are gardeners, enjoy gardening in one way or another? Yeah, I love it and I'm probably the worst gardener I've ever met. Almost everything, I've, my yard is full of dead plants and trees. Um, it's like a ghost tree vibe, you know, it's kind of cool that way. It's not, it's terrible, it just looks dead. But some of you are really good at this, and uh, we would love to spend our lives gardening. That sounds amazing. Um, but the truth is, we have to go to work, right? We have other stuff uh, that we have to do. And so, um, thankfully, at the beginning of Genesis, it not only tells us how things were at the beginning, but how things are supposed to be. I wonder if we picture life in the garden, Adam and Eve, the first humans, this beautiful place that God's created. They're sitting around, hanging out, playing with animals, eating fruit being naked, just kind of enjoying the vacation of their dreams, right? Um, that's, is that the perfect world? Is that the picture that we see in Genesis 2? Is that really like the ideal state of human existence? What we actually see is that God takes this man and woman and puts them to work. So in a perfect world, people are working. We're not just on an eternal vacation sipping margaritas by the pool. God designed people to work in his world. This is one of the ways God dignifies humanity, by giving us a job. And that job, gardening, contains a pattern for all human work. How does this work? Well, what do gardeners do? Tending a huge garden, we know, is a lot of work. You're constantly having to pull weeds and water and plant and harvest and prune and compost and all that kind of stuff. It is a lot of work. Well, why do we do it? Well, what's the point of gardening? Was it just something fun for Adam to do? The purpose was to create beauty, but also to produce food. What would have happened if the humans hadn't worked in the garden? Not only would the garden die, they would die. This was part of God's plan, that by working, they would be able to provide for themselves. And so, <clears throat> if we define what gardeners do, we could say it like this. Gardeners take the raw materials of soil and water and light and seeds, these things that God made. Gardeners take these raw materials and they arrange them and rearrange them to draw out their potential for the purpose of flourishing. There's this really interesting section in Genesis 2 that we, act, we often skip over. In fact, we did skip over it this morning because um, I didn't want Natalie to have to read all these names. But look in verse 10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. 
It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. And then when we get to verse 12, we get this really interesting parathetical detail. He says, the gold of that land is good, aromatic resin and onyx are also there too. And then he moves on. Um, why on earth would the storyteller take time to talk about what kind of rocks and minerals you might find in the garden? What a strange detail, right? Why would he note that not only is there gold, but it's actually really good gold? So fascinating. The author is saying that the garden was full of precious, raw materials that God had made and placed there for humans to discover and to figure out how to cultivate and develop and carve and construct with them. Everything that we need to build a world of flourishing is contained within the earth, but that's gonna take some work. One of my personal heroes passed away a couple weeks ago. Many of you are familiar with Reverend Dr. Timothy Keller, who planted and pastored uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City for many, many years. And um, in my first years as a young pastor, I had a binder full of Tim Keller sermon CDs that I kept in my car. For the kids, CDs are like um, <laughs> records? I don't know. <clears throat> and I listened to these uh, pretty much constantly uh, anytime I was in the car. And Keller really taught me how to preach. Uh, I never had the chance of meeting him in person, but one time he and I attended the same conference and since Kelly and Keller are so close, our name tags were next to each other. So um, this is my selfie with Tim Keller <laughs> from 2008. <laughs> <clears throat> One of the things I got from Keller was a theology of work. He preached a lot of sermons and wrote a lot of books about how we as Christians ought to see and do our work in light of the gospel, the good news about who God is and what he's done to save us in Christ. And so Keller's the first one that showed me how gardening fits as a paradigm for all human work. Here's how he puts it. God's design for work is that people would take the raw materials of a particular domain and rearrange them and cultivate them and develop them to draw out their potential for human flourishing. What an interesting idea. That no matter what kind of work you do, if you really pay attention and look for it, you'll find that this is what you're doing. If you're an architect, you take the raw materials of trees and rocks and stones and arrange them into buildings and bridges so that people can live and get around. If you're a musician, you take the raw materials of sound and tone and melody and rhythm and you arrange them so that when people hear it, it brings them joy and meaning. If you're a barista, you take the raw materials of coffee beans and water and you arrange them into something that we can't live without. <laughs> <laughs> If you're a stay-at-home parent, you take the raw materials 
of children and you develop them and cultivate them so that they can become healthy, responsible people. As a pastor, I get to take the raw materials of people and prayer and scripture and work with them and arrange them so that people can experience the presence of God in their lives. And you could go on and on and see how God's design for the world and even the smallest, most mundane, least glamorous jobs are packed full of meaning. An invitation to take the raw materials that God has put into creation and to draw out their potential to serve the world. This is a biblical view of work. Is this the way our culture looks at work? Does our culture see work as an opportunity to creatively get involved in developing the world God created to help meet people's needs? I would argue that for many of us, we either have too high a view of work or too low a view of work. We either worship it or we hate it. And when we take something that God has made and said that it's good, and we put that at the place of God in our lives, well, then it's idolatry, and we're worshiping another God. And when we see work as just a way to make money, to gain status, to get ahead in life, it's not about helping people or making the world better. It's simply about individual gain. What we're doing is making work an idol. We are looking to it to bring meaning and joy to our lives. So some people worship work, other people hate it. <laughs> they refuse to spend their time doing, their, doing hard things. They don't wanna take orders from anybody. They don't wanna be tied down. They feel entitled to all the good things in life. We either have too high a view or too low a view. And so whether you worship work or despise it, both of them are ways for looking for freedom and control and self-centeredness instead of finding your place in God's garden. Because the story of the Bible begins in a garden, but it also ends in a garden. And in Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, we see a garden, but it's really more of a garden city. It's full of beautiful, fruitful plants and trees and animals, but it's also full of human civilization and culture and flourishing and all these different parts of God's creation relating to one another in love and in harmony in a beautiful way. This is where the story was going from the very beginning. This was God's plan to create a world full of creative potential and then to create image bearers for himself to work it and to care for it, to draw out the goodness of the earth, and to partner with God as co-creators of a world where it truly is on earth as it is in heaven. And so the dignity of partnering with God in human work is found all over the scriptures. My favorite picture of this is when we share in the Lord's table, like we do every week, like we will in just a moment. When we come to this table each week along with billions of other Christians around the world, we partake in food and drink that represent the body and blood of Christ. But what are the elements that we eat and drink? It's not grain and grapes. 
It's bread and wine. Jesus could have had us just pick something out of the field and eat it. But instead, he invited humanity to partner with him in giving his life to the world. So God creates the grains and the grapes, and then humans harvest them, take them, break them down, cultivate them, combine them with other elements, bake them and ferment them, and turn them into bread and wine. Isn't that beautiful? The creation story ends with God saying it is finished, which is the same thing Jesus, of course, declared on the cross. So we are now free to work for him because he has accomplished the greatest work of all in being planted in the earth and then rising up to life again. So Antioch, may we worship God by caring for his property and pets. And may we cultivate joy and flourishing in our daily work that the world might see the beauty of the gardener in us. Amen.